Well, we all want to be great. In fact, all of us assume that we're great in some form or another. And we want those around us to respect us as great as well. And we often base our greatness in things that we've done or things that we do. So, for example, you might base your greatness in the fact that you raised three kids by yourself without any help. Or you're great because you've bought a nice house in Chessington, or great because of your sport, or great because you've got 37 different fidget spinners. This is the message pumped at us every day, all day. You're great. You are really special. You know what? You deserve it. And all those problems that we see in the world, all those problems out there, they exist around you, not because of you, because in reality, you are great. And even when we don't think we're great, the advice is to just acknowledge that actually you are great, and if you start to take control of your life and accept that you actually you're, you are great, then you can see who you really are and that those problems are nothing to do with you. You just need to accept you're great. And because you're great, people should take note of you. They should take note of your opinions. They should take note of you as you walk along the street and get out of your way. They should reply to your messages straight away. But because we all act like we're great, we all end up proud. And it fuels a very toxic environment because we all look down on each other. But this is nothing new. We see this morning from the passage that even the 12 disciples argue over greatness. It would be easy for them to think that somehow they were better than everyone else because Jesus has specially chosen them to be his 12 followers. And we see that their greatness is based on themselves. But that self-centered greatness isn't what we see in Jesus. So he takes his disciples to one side here and begins to train them privately about this. And through the reaction of the disciples here, we see that they, right now, aren't understanding Jesus' teaching. They think themselves to be great when in reality it is Jesus that is great and they can't see that. Their self-centered greatness is false. And that's the first heading this morning. Firstly, false greatness is self-centered in verses 30 to 34. False greatness is self-centered. So they've just come away from a situation where Jesus has healed a demon-possessed boy And the disciples weren't able to do so. And he begins to teach them. Look down in verse 31. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. Jesus is telling them quite plainly, I'm going to be killed. It could not be more obvious. Especially considering that this is not the first time that they've been told this. Back in chapter 8, they were told again from Jesus the exact same thing. And it says there in chapter 8 that Jesus spoke plainly about this. Guys, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again. But back there in in chapter 8, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, rebukes Jesus for this. And Jesus rebukes him back saying, get behind me, Satan. So this time in chapter 9, no one dares ask Jesus anything. 
Verse 32 says they did not understand what he meant and were too afraid to ask him. I don't want to ask him about it. You ask him. No, you ask him. Why don't you ask him, Peter? That worked out well for you last time, didn't it? Go on, ask him. They're afraid. They're fearful of being rebuked by Jesus or fearful that he's said plainly that he's going to die and they don't understand and they're silent. Remember in school when your teacher would say, has everyone understood what you need to do? And you will say yes. Then you turn to your mate and say, what are we doing? What do we have to do? This is exactly what's going on here. We're, we're no different to the disciples in this respect. We can hear things. We can hear hard things. And because they're hard, we, we don't understand. We go away anyway, hard-hearted, having not really heard and understood. Fearful that any questioning will make you look bad. So the disciples and Jesus move on to Capernaum, back where Jesus had initially revealed his glory through uh, teaching in chapter 1. And he asks them, what were you arguing about on the road? What were you talking about back there? Now clearly Jesus doesn't need to ask the disciples what they were arguing about because he's Jesus. But clearly questions are some of the best ways to get through to our thick skulls, especially when we know we're guilty. And this has happened to the disciples just here. Look down at verse 34 with me. They were arguing about who was the greatest. So they keep quiet and can't answer Jesus because there is no way for them to answer without painfully humbling themselves and admitting fault. Especially in light of the fact that the disciples have shown that they can't cast out a demon. They don't understand Jesus. They're fearful of asking questions. And Jesus has just been transfigured. He's been seen in all his glory. He's cast out demons. He's walked on water. He's healed the sick. He has power, dominion, authority, and glory. And the disciples are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And yet you and I are not so different. We can see the beauty of Jesus and marvel at him for being the son of man who's come to die. And we can rejoice in the gospel And yet in the very next thought, we think we're the greatest human being to have ever walked the earth because of the friends we have or the money that we have. Now we don't chat to our friends saying, I am the greatest, I really am. What we do instead is show off and and suddenly try and show how great we are. So you might have a peek at how many Instagram followers you have or blog views you have compared to other people or how much money you make compared to other people or even how much you serve the Lord compared to other people and we subtly show off by hoping that people notice things about us so we might pull up in our brand new car or invite people to take a look at your lovely garden or want people to take note of how well behaved your kids are when Beck and I moved into our new flat I put all of my tennis medals and trophies on display so that I can be reminded of how great I am at hitting a yellow ball over a net and show it off to the world. My wife decided to rearrange because in her words, no one cares. (laughs) I am not great. You are not great. We're not great. You may have great qualities, but there will always be areas where we fall short and don't admit our failings. You see, greatness based on ourselves 
self-centered greatness is so false and fragile. If our greatness isn't acknowledged in one form or another, then we get angry and bitter. And if it is acknowledged, but then we find that someone else hasn't acknowledged it, then we fall right back into hurt and anger all over again. One of the reasons this is, is that there really is only one person who's great. His name's Jesus. And Jesus goes on to show the disciples what real greatness, what true greatness actually is. So secondly, we see in the next part of the passage what real greatness truly is in verses 35 to 37. And that is, secondly, real greatness is service. Real greatness is service. So after asking the disciples what they were arguing about, Jesus begins to expand a little bit further upon greatness. And if there ever was someone to teach us about greatness, Jesus is a good place to start. And he sits down to teach them. Did you, did you see that there? At the start of verse 35, he sits down to teach them. This was Jesus' teaching position of the day, not standing up the front like we do, but sitting down among the people. So he sits down and says to them, Anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the greatest person ever. He is God. And he says that true greatness is being a servant of all. This is so different to what we see and hear around us and the message can almost be lost on us who've been in church for a while. The attitude around us is become great so that you can put your feet up and relax. Become great so that you don't serve people, but that other people serve you. But Jesus here says, no. If you want greatness, if you want to become the first, then be the last, be the least, be the servant of everyone. That is true greatness. Too many of us want to be great and yet forget that we're called to follow. We're called to be the last And Jesus demonstrates this for us so wonderfully in verse 36 by putting a child amongst the disciples. He then takes the child in his arms and says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Oh, what's the point of this child here? Oh, we don't know how young this child was, but Jesus says they were little. And little children, though cute and fun sometimes, little children are helpless. I was visiting my nephew, a newborn nephew, just last week, and although he's incredibly cute, he is totally helpless. His parents get nothing in return from him for their hard-working love for him. No payment, no thanks, no recognition. Little children depend on mum and dad for everything. Yet Jesus gives serving them as an example of what being servant of all means. Are you willing to serve those who can give you nothing in return? Are you willing to become so low that you would help a child who has no means to pay you and won't fully grasp the good you're doing to them? Or will you only help when you know people will see your help and you know that you'll get handsomely thanked and rewarded even though you've only helped for your sake and not as a servant. You see, real greatness is service. 
Real greatness puts others' needs before your own. Real greatness is loving those with nothing to give. Jesus, in all his glory, became a servant and became the lowest of the low on that cross. Jesus gave up his greatness and sacrificed his life so that we might know a relationship with him, the only truly great person to exist. And Jesus needs nothing from you in return. In fact, there's nothing you can give him to repay his sacrifice. No amount of service can earn you more love. Jesus needs nothing from you. In comparison to him, we are weak. We are helpless. And until we see ourselves for what we really are, weak, helpless, and in total dependence on Jesus, then we're not going to benefit from his sacrificial love. You are not great. Jesus is. And the more we trust in Jesus' greatness and stop misplacing our desire for greatness in ourselves, the better. Because false greatness, false self-centered greatness, leads to hell. So thirdly, false greatness leads to hell. In verses 38 to 50, false greatness leads to hell. This, this teaching of Jesus to love and, and welcome the little is tough. And because it's tough, we try and put limits on what Jesus really meant. And we see John doing it in verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Do you see what John's saying there? What about that guy, Jesus? He's driving out demons, but he's not a disciple. Do we still have to love and welcome him? Surely you can't want us to welcome him. We've been with you for a while now, and we've been hearing some great teaching and doing some great work, and here comes this guy, but he's not a disciple. We, you can't want us to love and welcome him. Do I still have to welcome him, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? Do not stop him. He is with us. Now, it seems to me that the disciples, or at least John here, is still annoyed that they couldn't cast out a demon a few verses ago. And here they see someone else who's just turned up out of nowhere who isn't a disciple, being able to do so. They're still thinking about being great and getting recognized themselves. And here's some random guy who's turned up out of nowhere and looks better than them. If he was to join the disciples, then he'd be way up in the pecking order. But they've still got to love and welcome him. You see, the kingdom of God is not about you. It's not about me. The kingdom of God is about Jesus. And genuine Christians doing good works in the name of Jesus are not to be turned away. Every Christian, whether a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, is with Jesus. And those of us who have been Christians for a long while have no business looking down upon those who've only been Christians a short while. Yes, naturally and rightly, those who've been Christians for a while should seek to lead and train those who've only been Christians a short while because we want people to love Jesus more. But when those younger in the faith start doing great things for God, we should celebrate, not get annoyed like the disciples here. 
And there's a grave warning from Jesus about this in the next few verses. Jesus now shifts the focus from little children to those little in the faith. Look down at verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. This was a particularly brutal method of Roman execution at the time. So this isn't, this isn't gentle Jesus speaking. This is radical Jesus who wants all believers under his leadership to be at peace with each other. And if you're undermining Jesus' greatness by causing other believers to sin and lose their way, then there is a severe warning. The failure to welcome other believers is a terrible sin. I confess I can fall into this very easily. I'm proud because I go to an independent evangelical church. We have good pastors who teach well and we even have a cafe out there. And I can look down on other Christians for not being like us, not doing things the way that we do. Joking about it in the name of banter only to end up being convicted of my sin and repenting. So I hear Jesus' warning here as loudly as all of you. Other believers need the cross as much as you do and you need the cross as much as they do. If they end up stumbling in faith or sinning because of your actions, then Jesus says it is better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and you be thrown into the sea. God's kingdom is about God's greatness, not ours. Far be it from us to think that we're so great and so proud that we can't even go and say hello to another fellow believer. And there's a contrast to note here in verses 41 and 42. Two paths to take, if you will. Both verses speak of anyone. On the one hand, in in verse 41, you have if anyone does a small act of service, then they won't lose their reward. And verse 42, if anyone causes someone to stumble, then they'll suffer judgment. So the question is, will we trust in God's greatness, live for him, and inherit eternal life? Or will we trust in our own greatness, push others away, only to end up in hell ourselves? If you're leading others astray, then that is where you're headed. And hell is such a horrendous place, and sin is so serious, that Jesus continues to talk about it in verse 43. And these are some of the harshest words ever spoken by Jesus on sin and hell. And so it's hard for me to preach on them, let alone read it. But we can't skip over the bits that we don't like. So let's look down at verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is not a popular subject. 
And when we think of it, we, we can get awkward or we think of it as a joke and imagine a red devil with pointy ears and a pitchfork and we're in danger of forgetting that it is a terrifyingly real place. The word that Jesus uses to describe hell here is Gehenna. This was a place just outside Jerusalem that was used as a rubbish tip to burn unwanted bits of meat. And in Israel's history, uh, children were sacrificed there to the false gods. There were child sacrifices there. This is a ghastly, disgusting, unclean place. And Jesus is blunt and to the point about it. If you can picture this ghastly place, then of course it's better to cut off limbs and enter into life with the kingdom of God than with a fully able body enter hell. And if we don't start seeing ourselves as little, if we don't start seeing ourselves as in need of a great savior, then we're taking a leisurely stroll right into the wide entrance of hell. Self-centered greatness says, I don't need God. I am great. I'm going to live my life. But one day every knee will bow before Jesus and that will either be willingly or you'll be forced to kneel and thrown into the fires of hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is a never-ending torment that seems so vile and offensive to our ears because it genuinely is vile and offensive but that doesn't stop it from being any less true. So when you see sin in your life, cut it out. When there are stumbling blocks in your relationship with God, plead with him to remove them. Pray earnestly that you'll see yourself as a helpless sinner in need of a great savior. Now don't actually go and chop your hands and feet off, but if you're looking at stuff you shouldn't be on your phone, then you need to stop. Pray earnestly and with God's help, cut it out of your life. If you find yourself envious all the time because you see that other people have better stuff than you, pray earnestly and with God's help, cut it out of your life. If you find yourself thinking that you're great and you start looking down on other people because of it, pray earnestly and with God's help, cut it out of your life. Cutting off limbs won't do anything anyway because the issue is with our impure hearts. And nothing impure will get into heaven. So to get to heaven, there must be a way that we are made pure. And that's exactly what we see in verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is this picture of goodness, of of purity. And one day Jesus is coming back to judge humanity and we will all be salted. We'll all be purified. Nothing bad nothing impure will get into heaven. So therefore, Jesus says in verse 50, to recognize that you need purifying. If you start to trust in your own greatness and stop thinking you need purifying, you'll have, in effect, lost your saltiness, as Jesus says. If we think we're great, we'll always be people arguing about who's right and who gets to sit in the front seat of the car and who's the best, Instead, we must humbly trust in Jesus' greatness to make us good from the inside out. When we trust him to do that, then we'll have peace with each other. When we know God's the greatest, then we'll have peace with each other because we're united around Jesus. Now, it's easy to hear 
sermons on sin and hell and feel terrible because you can't see how God could love you despite your sin. And you're right. God hates sin. But God has dealt with sin. While we, though impure, become pure, Jesus, though pure, became impure. He showed real greatness by serving us impure people to the point of death. And through trust in Jesus, you are no longer seen in your false self-centered greatness, but you are seen as pure and pleasing before God. Self-centered greatness leads to hell, but the great news is, is that God's greatness takes you to heaven. Or as American pastor Tim Keller puts it, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Through Jesus, you are pleasing. Through his greatness, you are saved. There is no other way to escape the very real fires of hell than through trust in Jesus' greatness. Through his death on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserve in this very real place called hell so that you can be with him in the kingdom of God. So would you become little? Would you become aware of your helplessness and dependent on Jesus for everything? Self-centered greatness leads to hell. But a reliance upon God's greatness leads to eternal life and eternal peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a great saviour. Thank you that you became so low to serve us and sacrifice your life for us. Please would you remove from us any ideas of false greatness. Please would we humbly admit our dependence upon you. Thank you that through your greatness we can escape hell and inherit eternal life and have peace. In Jesus' precious name, amen.